Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent. And uh, we're picking up this evening with the very end of step number five on repentance. In fact, the very last paragraph, 42. And then, as I said, we'll be moving into step six on the remembrance of death, which is one of Climacus's most well-known writings, I I think. Uh, He seems to go into the the most detail of any of the fathers on this and its importance for the spiritual life to be mindful of one's mortality and uh, and the impact that that has on our spiritual life, not sort of in a morbid way, but with this clarity about the brevity of our life and what is of greatest importance. So again, we're at the bottom of page 107. Lori's connecting here by audio here. We'll let her, let her connect. Okay, there she is. So we're, we're at the bottom of page 107 there, Lori. Last paragraph on step on repentance. In my meditation, or rather in my repentance, a fire of prayer will be kindled consuming that which is material. May the holy convicts mentioned above provide you with a role and a pattern and a model and a living picture of repentance. And throughout your life, you will need no book at all until Christ, the Son of God and God, enlightens you in the resurrection of true repentance. Amen. You who are repenting now have reached the fifth step. For by repentance, you have purified the five senses and you have voluntarily escaped involuntary punishment. So a lot in this last little paragraph, uh, a role, a pattern, model, a living picture of repentance. And uh, reading it, that's exactly what it becomes. It's so striking, the images that we, we went through. Uh, that it's hard to get it out of one's memory and imagination. This vivid image of mourning and sorrow for one's sin. And uh, he's going to segue from from this uh, to talk about the remembrance of death and then uh, what is called compunction or joyful or sorrowful joy. Uh, mourning over one's sin that gives way to the joy of the restored relationship with God. Uh, And as I mentioned before, some of you joined here, John's writing here in the sixth step is uh, some of his most memorable. And it's because of the depth uh, uh, with which he writes about the the remembrance of death and uh, its importance for the spiritual life. And uh, to be honest with you, before reading Climacus, I had never even heard of the idea and would never have imagined that that would be a part of the spiritual life. And yet, uh, after reading it, it has been a a fixture in my spiritual life. And uh, John writes with clarity about it. And in terms of uh, keeping our focus upon the kingdom, and the pursuit of the life of virtue, and this remembrance of death, if it's from hour to hour, uh, really can bring a person to a great level of freedom, that pulling things into perspective uh, about our life, whether it's our sufferings or the things that we're engaged in in this world, 
the mindfulness of our mortality uh, keeps all those things in proper perspective. We see them for what they're worth. It doesn't mean that we negate their value or importance, but we never lose sight of what is of, of greatest value for us by the simple remembrance of eventually coming before our God and making account for our life. So step number six, page 10108, uh, top of the page. Every word is preceded by thought, and the remembrance of death and sins precedes weeping and mourning. Therefore, the subject comes in its proper place in this chapter. So the remembrance of death is something that leads us to a kind of mourning that is shaped in line with everything that he's been talking about and allows us then to move to this idea of true compunction that isn't uh, shame or rooted in fear, but rather rooted in the love of God. At the very end of it, this is what he makes clear to us, that what drives all of this is our love and desire for God, not, not ultimately fear. And, uh, and so again, you know, try to suspend judgment uh, just enough I mean, to follow him along and how he unpacks it. The remembrance of death is a daily death, and the remembrance of our departure is an hourly sighing and, or groaning. So, a daily death that, you know, we, in remembering it, consciously begin then to desire to die to self and to sin with a greater clarity. And we grow in our desire to be with the Lord, to know the fullness of that life and love with him. And so there comes to us a desire to leave this world and be with the Lord fully, as there was for Paul, that we understand that God may will for us to be in this world, to continue uh, our, our labors for him and the labor for virtue, but ultimately this is meant to stir within us this greater desire for completion, for fullness uh, of love. And uh, so again, it's, it's not something that is meant to drive us into fear, but really to create a greater longing for us for this uh, complete union with our Lord. Fear of death is a property of nature that comes from disobedience, but trembling at death is a sign of unrepentant sins. Christ fears death, but not does not tremble, tremble, I'm sorry, in order to demonstrate clearly the properties of his two natures. So having embraced our humanity, uh, John tells us that he has uh, this fear of death, the experience of it. Uh, the weight of it, and uh, that for us as human beings, the, it is a true death to self in the most radical way. And, uh, and so in his embrace of our humanity, he experiences it. He sweats blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He weeps at the tomb of Lazarus, seeing what death does and what it means. But trembling, he tells us, is really rooted in our uh, unrepentant sins. 
that if we we experience this kind uh, of fear uh, that's not rooted in the reality of death itself, but rather in the consequence of our sin or unknown consequence of it, uh, that leads to a kind of trembling on our part rather than confidence in God or confidence in the life that we've lived. As of all foods, bread is the most essential, so the thought of death is the most necessary of all works. The remembrance of death amongst those in the midst of society gives birth to distress and meditation and even more to despondency. But amongst those who are free from noise, it produces the putting aside of cares and constant prayer and guarding the mind. But these same virtues both produce the remembrance of death and are also produced by it. So the virtues sort of produce it and the remembrance of death uh, produces certain virtues, but it's different than what we see in the world. There can be this constant anxiety about one's death that then results in uh, the development of certain defenses to put it out of mind and uh, to make oneself look younger, to stay looking younger longer, uh, where, you know, the plastic surgery exists, you know, of continuing to involve oneself in child, uh, childhood activities, as it were. Uh, and some of the groups have often thought about uh, that it's often advertised on television, the what the villages have you ever seen the commercials for that it's someplace down in florida and they show them tap dancing and playing softball and of course they all look like they're teenagers doing it teenagers in old bodies uh but it there's something about it that makes me feel uncomfortable every time i watch it because it seems to create this sense of oh, come live here and you'll be perpetually young and doing these things that young people love love to do, and uh, and you know I see I think we see this across the board. You know, it's whether it's with video games or other things that uh, a loss of self and reality or absorption in this kind of virtual reality that prevents us from thinking about our life and thinking about mortality and even how we face the death of those that we love in our day often is sanitized. And I'm seeing more and more of this movement of people leaving it in their wills, even when they're religious, not to have anything done, like to have no funeral, litur no funeral mass or liturgy, no funeral service at all. And, you know, on one level, it's rationalized as like not wanting to be a burden to one's family. But it's, I think part of it is avoiding preparing for it. You know, preparing for one's last resting place, but also preparing for one's own funeral and, uh, and involving one's family in that. I think to direct one's attention to that creates a certain level of anxiety. So even among Catholics who have this, you know, belief in the resurrection, this, this hope of, of an eternal life and hope in the mercy of God, and this sense of the need to pray for the deceased, and even wanting 
masses. Like I want everybody to be offering hundreds of masses for me. So I place you now is stated uh, out there clearly to have many masses said on my behalf uh, and for God's mercy. But it's a curious thing, you know, the sense of having masses offered for people or praying for the repose of their souls. Uh, praying, praying for the dead is something that is put out of people's mind. It's, it's, it's falling out of the Christian consciousness. And I think it's because we are being drawn back into this kind of worldly fear that pulls people into despondency. If we have a hope uh, of participating in the fullness of God's life, then what we, sh you know, our approach to death should be qualitatively different than everyone else's within the world. You know, both in, in terms of how we live our life, the repentance that we engage in, the way, uh, seeking to live the life that God has called us to, but having this desire and longing for the, the fullness of that life within him. Uh, and so keeping our eyes fixed upon the kingdom. And I mentioned Paul earlier, you know, saying, uh, you know, I long for that time when I can leave this world and be united to Christ fully. And, uh, and I think that can be frightening to a lot of people. And in some previous groups, you know, one, one of my closest friends, uh, Father Drew, when he was a little, uh, some of you know him, when he was a little boy, his mom asked him, what do you want to be when, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, you know, without missing a beat, he said to her, I want to be a martyr. And she said, oh, never say that again. She became furious with him. And because here is a, a little boy, he had these sensibilities that, you know, martyrdom was put up as, you know, this uh, path to the kingdom. It was to offer one's complete self to God, uh, even willing to shed one's blood. So it was the ideal for him as a young boy. And, you know, not to criticize his mom, I think any mom would probably be aghast at hearing their child say that, at least initially. But uh, it shows that, you know, there wasn't any impediment for him as a young boy of thinking about that and thinking about that as a path to something greater. And sometimes we lose that childlike simplicity and desire that this is something that holds out the greatest joy to us of a life unending, of an invincible love. And, uh, and so it should be something that we not only remind ourselves in, in order to lead a certain life, but that it creates within us this desire for God. So the remembrance of death is an antidote to avarice, lust of the flesh, lust of eyes, pride of life, Anthony. Right, yeah, I think it loosens the grip that these things have upon us. Not that we don't have to battle with them, but I think the clearer that we have in our mind that all these things are going to turn to dust and all that we collect for ourselves and then seek to protect, uh, that all of it comes to nothing. Tomorrow, we're not guaranteed tomorrow, the saints tell us, let alone another 20, 30 years. And yet we can be very much fixated on, you know, 
ensuring our future. It's very much like the man in the gospel, you know, with the uh, doing so well as a farmer, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and granaries and build big, bigger ones. And he's called a fool for it. In fact, in the Byzantine rite, that's the gospel for this weekend, that he's called a fool for it because that day his life uh, will end. And, uh, and having that little bit of clarity can really change the way I think we experience the difficult things in our day-to-day -day life and the way that we temper our enthusiasm about other things. Not that we can't know joy about the good things that we have or time with family and friends and, you know, or take pride in, you know, uh, the work that we do or the things that we accomplish, but it tempers our enthusiasm with this understanding that it's how we do that work, the manner in which we do it and who we do it for that matters. And that in the end, you know, it's, we, we aren't going to take it with us. The only thing that we take out of this world is our virtue or our vice, how we've lived our life. That, that alone is what endures. So it's interesting. He says, as food is the most essential, I'm sorry, as bread is the most essential of foods, so this is the most essential of works. And typically we wouldn't think about the remembrance of something or the remembrance of death as a work. Uh, but when we think about the interior life, uh, works for the fathers was the ascetic life and the struggle with the passions, the struggle to grow in virtues and to develop a deep prayer life. It was a given that this would produce, you know, charity, the fulfillment of the, the teachings of the gospel in terms of our relations with others. But in order to be able to love in the way that Christ loves, the work that we engage in is the work of the interior life. And the most essential aspect, John is telling us, is this remembrance that it in some ways is a corrective lens for us. You know, it allows us to see things with a greater clarity. As tin is distinct from silver, although it resembles it in appearance, so for the discerning, there is a clear and obvious difference between the natural and the contranatural fear of death. So, you know, we can look at the experience of the Christian's fear of death and understand that as a consequence of the fall of sin, that our experience of the ending of our life uh, and not just the unknown of it, but what that means for us as human beings, uh, the, the magnitude of that creates a kind of fear uh, that uh, that it is natural, you know. I think when it goes uh, when it's contrary to to nature, you know, it's because uh, you know often of these unrepented sins, you know, that we begin again to fear and tremble over it. You know, so to to look at it uh, not as something that ultimately brings us closer to Christ, uh, but something 
that will do the opposite. And, you know, I don't want people to take me wrong, you know, that we hear in the scriptures, you know, death is an enemy, you know, the worst of enemies. Uh, but in and through Christ's death and resurrection, we need not fear it. And it becomes this pathway for us towards life eternal. And, and so it's when we look upon death with the eyes of faith, we comprehend uh, what it has become in and through Christ. And so outside of faith, you know, on merely on an intellectual level, I think it's always going to be something that is fearsome to people on this very deep level and where they'll want to avoid it in thought. Or they'll want it because of a uh, kind of despair or despondency, you know, to move into a kind of a, oblivion. A true sign of those who are mindful of death and the depth of their being is a voluntary detachment from every creature and complete renunciation of their will. And so the more that one sees the brevity of one's life, the less that one clings uh, to the things of this world, no matter how good or beautiful that we are able to let go of those things and, uh, and not be as possessive of them or fearful of losing them. And so the more that we see what God offers us, uh, the more that we are going to voluntarily let those things go, uh, not in the sense that we put them outside of our life altogether, but that we don't cling to them uh, with this kind of fearful grip or become obsessive about them. Again, in, in our day-to-day life, fear seems to be such a powerful motivator rather than love. And uh, it should be the other way around, you know, that in and through our faith, it should be love that draws us and pulls us forward. And uh, often it is fear, and we think, you know, that in pre, you know, many generations of Christians, I think, maybe overemphasize certain things to instill kind of a fear and terror. In fact, in the other translation of this work, the word that was used uh, of, of uh, was not to tremble, but to be terrorized by. Uh, and I think, you know, that that's you know, what we often do to ourselves and what the world does to us and where our sin brings us, we become terrorized by this reality rather than keeping our focus upon Christ. He who without undoubting trust daily expects death is virtuous, but he who hourly yields himself to it is a saint. So to, to have this kind of freedom to bring it to mind, each hour to acknowledge it is going to give us a kind of clarity in how we're living our life. We know how distracted we can become and uh, how something can trigger anxiety within us that we aren't going to be enough, we aren't going to do enough, we aren't going to accomplish enough in a, in a given day or something could happen. Look at the world, it's a mess. 
And, you know, I think COVID did this to a lot of people and certainly all the things going on in the world is currently doing it to people as well. And not that we should be callous about those things, but I think if we are able to see that all of these things are over in the blink of an eye and whatever anyone might do or whatever might come along, virus might come along, what is it that we have the fear? You know, when we have the divine physician, you know, he who is life, the governor of our life, the Lord of love, what is it that we have to be anxious about? And so if the remembrance of death shifts our focus to him and to place our hope only in him, then a radical freedom should ultimately be ours. In fact, freedom from all anxiety. Not every desire for death is good. Some constantly sinning from force of habit pray for death with humility, and some who do not want to repent invoke death out of despair, and some out of self-esteem consider themselves dispassionate and for a while have no fear of death, and some, if such can now be found, through the action of the Holy Spirit, ask for their departure. And so, you know, a person, you know, some are deluded, you know, in the sense of not, you know, that they take nothing serious within this world. And so see themselves as free from the fear of death. And, but in this sense, they, you know, are not looking at reality as it is. Some want to simply escape this life and so want to die out of despair. But the last one, by the action of the Holy Spirit, there can be those, again, driven by the spirit of love, have an overwhelming longing to be with God. And so can pray for that departure to be with him. And it's important to be able to make this distinction and certainly not to be quick to think that, you know, somehow, you know, we have the freedom, that kind of freedom. Anthony wrote, so there uh, is fear sometimes from an over-exaggerated sense of duty. Yeah, I think so. You know, that we are, again, that's being driven often, again, not out of love, but this sense of worrying about failing someone. And so it can be tied more to self-esteem. You know, how will we see, seem in the eyes of others if we fail them in this or that way, or if we don't accomplish something that is asked of us? And, uh, you know, I think little children sometimes fear that their parents are going to see them in that way too, you know, and uh, because, you know, if their parents in some ways live vicariously through them, you know, they might project certain expectations upon them, and it creates an anxiety in the minds and the hearts of their children. You know, I have to live up to what this expectation is, or they are going to love me, or I'm going to fail them in some way and not be worthy of their love. And uh, so certainly having this exaggerated sense of it can, uh, duty can be a very powerful thing and a good thing. But like anything that's taken to the extreme, it can be destructive. Okay. Uh, number nine, 
Some inquire and wonder, why, when the remembrance of death is so beneficial for us, has God hidden from us the knowledge of the hour of death? Not knowing that in this way, God wonderfully accomplishes our salvation. For no one who foreknew his death would at once proceed to baptism or the monastic life. But everyone would spend all his days in iniquities, and only on the day of his death would he approach baptism and repentance. From long habit, he would become confirmed in vice and would remain utterly incorrigible. And so, you know, it's often an illusion, you know, to think, well, if I knew the time of that, you know, that that would somehow change the way that I would, would live. And John is saying, no, you know, that we would put off our conversion and we would get to a point where we are uncorrectable that we would be, you know, incorrigible, that we would immerse ourselves in it. You know, one can get to a point where love is so deep that we do it out of desire, but, you know, a habit of virtue uh, that moves us in the direction of God has to be fostered. And the thought that at our last moment, we are going to magically you know, have what is needed to turn to God. What comes to mind is the, the story of the, the foolish virgins, you know, the ones who do not take oil with them. And, you know, oil, whether it's love for God or faith, you know, it's, it's not something, and we see it in the story, it's not something that can be shared. You know, when they ask, you know, give us some of your oil, the bridegroom is coming. Yeah, and they're told no, you know, go, go, go get your own, that we can't, you know, faith is not something that we can borrow from someone, that it has to be rooted in a real relationship with God. And so, you know, what makes us think if we have not entered into that relationship, that, you know, in the moment of death, which we don't know where is coming, that we'll be able to make that turn toward, toward God. So again, you know, there is this no like passive position in the spiritual life that we are, if we're not struggling against our vices and if we're not fostering a love for God, that we are going to be drawn along by the ego and by our appetites towards the things of this world that we seek identity in, seek hope in, and in this sense, we become incorrigible. No, we can become so deeply rooted in those things that we no longer see them as problematic. And so repentance becomes an impossibility for us. That's the only unforgivable sin, you know, that we hear about in the scripture. You know, when we become, have, our consciences have become so distorted that we're no longer able to see, you know, the meaning of our own actions, the weight of them, and be able to turn back to God. The mercy and love is freely given, but if it's not desired and we don't turn towards him and seek it, uh, then it's not going to be forced upon us. It's, you know, the darkening of the conscience is a frightening thing, and I think there's so much in our world today that can do it. And sometimes it's more subtle than we 
imagine, you know, that we are gradually exposed to certain things within the world and uh, become more and more of accepting of them within our life and don't see the impact that they have on our loving others or loving God in the way that he's called us to. And, uh, and not seeing those things then prevents us from any deeper conversion. Okay. Number 10. Never, when mourning for your sins, accept that cur which suggests to you that God is tender-hearted. This thought is useful only when you see yourself being dragged down to deep despair. For the aim of the enemy is to thrust from you your mourning and fearless fear. So this is a toughie. Uh, you know, not uh, to take hold of this suggestion of the evil one that God is tender-hearted in the sense of our actions, our behaviors, our choices having no meaning, having no weight in his mind. As if God says to all things, no worries, you know, you know, you know, shake it off, you know, it's don't don't think about it. Uh, you know, and certainly don't be sad about it. And I think, you know, there can be something there that we project uh, because we find ourselves doing it to others and them doing it to us. You know, nobody wants another person to be sorry. And so, or to feel the, the pain of something. And so we try to fix that mood because it makes us uncomfortable. And, uh, and so John says, you know, there's a real temptation in this to make God into something that he's not and to cheapen the grace that is given to us and that flows to us from the cross and uh, that also cheapens our own life and its meaning. You know, the, the dignity and the meaning of our actions and the choices that we make and their value. That one of the gifts that God has given us is our freedom. And so if we, we make our choices insignificant and the sacrifices that we make in loving and giving ourselves in love, you know, all, all of a sudden, you know, what's, what's the meaning and the purpose of that? Now, who is going to die for something that has no weight and, and no, where it has no weight and no value? You know, those who rise to a heroic level are often presented with something that has this great meaning to it, you know, to the point that they're willing to sacrifice their life, you know, to protect others or whatever it might be, you know, sol soldiers, you know, going into battle and sacrificing their own life, you know, for a greater cause. And, uh, and so, you know, what is it for the Christians that reveals that to us. And you know, we hear Christ over and over again telling his apostles, you know, as they've hated me, they will hate you. You know, that the, the world will seek to destroy you. And so, you know, don't expect uh, that you won't be persecuted in the, in the way that I have. And 
you know, puts before them this challenge and, you know, that draws them into a greater faith and a deeper love and commitment. And so, you know, if we make Christianity meaningless and, you know, we morph it into, you know, simply being kind to, to others, being good people, I think is, uh, you know, the common parlance, then, you know, then why be Christian? You know, other people can be good people by natural virtue and, you know, by temperament. We're not called to be good people. We're called to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect and to be merciful as he's merciful, to love our enemies, you know, Okay. Number 11. Anyone who wishes to retain within him continually the remembrance of death and God's judgment, and at the same time yields to material cares and distractions, is like a man who is swimming and wants to clap his hands. So John always has these little nice little images that you know, it's an impossibility to remember death and the judgment of God and yet hold on to these distractions and to strive constantly for the material things of this world, as impossible as it is to clap one's hands while one is swimming. You know, we, it's physically not, just as that's physically not possible for us, it's spiritually not possible for us to do these things. The vivid remembrance of death cuts down food, and when humility, food is cut, the passions are cut out too. So, you know, the, the remembrance of death, you know, food is one of the basic things that, for us that where we find comfort. And, you know, that's why so many aisles of the grocery store are filled with ice cream and chips and cookies and soda and all that kind of stuff. And it's because we look to food, you know, this very basic appetite to fill an emptiness or to console us. And, uh, and so to move, be able to move away from that, the first step is to fast, you know, with this one central appetite to uh, order it and but also to tie it again to the one alone who can satisfy the desires of the heart so it's not just the discipline alone but it's tied to he who is the bread of life and our reception of the holy eucharist this is why minimizing the eucharistic fast i think is problematic too i mean we're never hungry you know, probably in, in America, I mean, we just we have, we graze and, you know, if you walk through your kitchen, you pick something up. And uh, so the idea of fasting, you know, from midnight on uh, before you receive Holy Communion, you know, to enter into that experience where on a bodily level, you feel that hunger and to be able to make that connection to your hunger and desire for God, but also what he's going to nourish you with from the holy altar. You know, all that is to enter into that mystery more fully and more consciously. And, uh, and so this is why, 
you know, in the fathers, we, we find the regular practice of fasting, not just the episodic, because it leads to humility, the humbling of the body humbles the mind. And with the humbling uh, of the mind, the passions begin to be cut off as well. We begin to cling to God as a, our source of strength. We see our poverty uh, more clearly, our need for his grace and, uh, and our prayer deepens at that point. And so you'll hear the father say that prayer without fasting is weak. You know, that the full self is not involved in the practice of it. You know, uh, prayer is a reflection of our desire and our hunger for God and for his love. And so, but we are to become prayer, our whole being is you know to become a sacrifice of praise but also we are to experience in our hoping this yearning for god insensibility of heart dulls the mind and abundance of food dries the fountains of tears thirst and vigil afflict the heart and when the heart is afflicted the waters flow the things we have said will seem cruel to epicures and incredible to the indolent, but a man of action will readily test them, and he who has found them out by experience will smile at them, but he who is still seeking will become more gloomy. Well, this is a really important paragraph and a good one, I think, to highlight, uh, you know, that there is this kind of insensibility to things spiritual, uh, you know, that where we never discipline ourselves and so never come to experience the, the joy of uh, chastity or purity of heart or of deep prayer and intimacy with the Lord. And so, you know, our hearts can become dull and insensitive to those things. And the abundance of food, you know, the more that we are nourishing ourselves, uh, consoling ourselves with food, the tears of, of mourning dry up, you know, or the tears of longing for God and longing for that purity begin to, to dry up. And so, you know, he's pretty honest about it. You know, for those who are epicures, those who love fine foods and think about fine foods and, uh, you know, have that as a kind of obsession, you know, this is going to seem to be something that's, that it's going to seem to be something that is cruel and, uh, and you know, incredible to the indolent. You know, so, you know, a person can get to a point where they don't even want to hear about it, that it seems full, foolhardy. Why would you want to do that? You know, why would you want to deprive yourself of these good things of life? And, uh, and so what John says here is important. It's those who, from experience, who, who put it to the test, you know, don't just take it on the word of the writings of the fathers, but they hear that and then they embrace it in order to experience it themselves. 
And then they smile because they begin to see that the, these very disciplines open up a pathway for, for them, that though it seems to afflict the self, that it really opens us up to this experience of God and weakens the hold of the passions on us. And so we become freer in our, our capacity to love. And so any renewal of the church is going to begin with asceticism and the writings of the fathers. You know, I think by entering fully into our faith, entering into the spiritual battles, until we begin to experience the fruit of that and begin to taste the joy of the virtues and uh, the fruitfulness of these exercises. Because we can sort of pay an homage to it, you know, uh, a certain period of time, you know, Lent often will become that for us and a kind of symbolic kind of fasting or even uh, the symbolic kind of penances that were given uh, in the confessional or the symbolic fast of one hour, you know, before receiving holy the Holy Eucharist, you know, so we can pay lip service, as it were, to the value of these things, but really never come to see the real fruit of them in our life. And I've mentioned before the, the author of the book, To Love Fasting, that, you know, for most people that would seem moronic. And, you know, who in the world would love fasting or find that it's so freeing that they want to have it as a regular part of their life, other than a person that John describes here that through experience has come to taste the sweetness of virtue or the sweetness of having their longing for God deepen over the course of time. Just as the fathers lay down that perfect love is free from falls, so I for my part declare that a perfect sense of death is free from fear. So interesting, after all of this, you know, a, a perfect sense of death is free from fear. That if we believe that Christ is the conqueror of death and has conquered it, then there is no reason for us to fear it and only to strive, you know, towards the, the freedom that he's made possible for us. And you can tell where there isn't this freedom. You know, we become hypochondriacs. We become very anxious about our health and staying healthy. And we will go to great lengths to protect that. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we, you know, should be foolhardy about that. But we, we can be obsessively concerned about how we are feeling. You know, the least little ache, this little sore throat, the headache, you know, becomes a tumor. You know, the sore throat, you know, you know, is you know, a bad illness coming on, you know, or, uh, and I think a person who remembers death is going to be free from the fear of the things of this world. You know, especially when we see it through the eyes of faith, if it is something ultimately that has been conquered. And if we are living the life of faith, then it's going to bring us to Christ. 
which we have to be fearful about. In fact, we're commanded not to be anxious about anything. So, number 15. Oh, Bridget McGinley writes, I was once advised to fast from speech. It transformed my spiritual life. Fasting can be in various forms, I suppose. Yes, you know, I agree with that. You know, that we're in a kind of constant state of receptivity and we can be feeding ourselves on the desire for a whole host of things. And speech can be one of them, you know, to be curious about so many things and, you know, to wanting to know what's going on in people's life or around us that we're constantly engaged in this conversation. And so to slow things down, and to guard one's speech is an important thing. Uh, but I, I hear that so often now, I become a little suspect about it, that of course that's true, that we, you know, what you wrote here, but I often feel that it's used as a, a, a way of not fasting from food, uh, of not controlling, this fundamental appetite uh, that we have and not to embrace the wisdom of the fathers. And we, we've come up with a lot of different reasons of why I can't tell you the number of people that tell me that they can't do this because of specific health reasons. And I get it that that can be legitimate, but, you know, on a certain level, you know, a person can fast and abstain from certain foods and, uh, you know, there, there can be a resistance to that psychologically and spiritually to walk down that path. And if food is this consoling agent for us, I mean, it's the first thing. I mean, we are on our mother's breast, you know, being nourished at the beginning of our life. And it's how we experience a kind of closeness and comfort and enough, you know, to drift off into la-la land. If you ever seen a baby who's just finished eating, it's like they're drunk and, and, you know, fall off to sleep. And so it's not a big stretch, I think, for us psychologically to say, you know, food is probably going to be a pretty important, powerful thing for us and that we are going to use it uh, in a defensive kind of way against the things of life that weigh upon us. I've seen myself eating in all different kinds of ways, you know, to console, I've done aggressive eating, you know, you have a rough day or a long day and you you grab a bag of chips and you start, you know, like you're throwing it in, gnawing at it. If you were to slow down, have you ever heard of micro gestures? I often find that fascinating when they slow down images. They did this a lot around uh, the O.J. Simpson trial when people were asked certain questions and it would seem like they're, you know, sort of smiling, but there are these subtle micro gestures that often will be revelatory of uh, what's going on on a deeper level with people. And uh, sometimes with eating, that can be as well eat real fast you know or in an agitated way or aggressive you know in a biting way you know that we can be gnawing on stuff even when we're not hungry 
you know, it's the action of doing it. So, you know, I think it's essential for us to recapture this particular ascetic practice. You know, it's tied so much to prayer and almsgiving and vigils, you know, these fundamental appetites that we have that are so important, but fasting above them all, you know, especially with the struggle with other bodily appetites is seen as essential. And so while I agree with what Bridget said, you know, fasting from talk, you know, that's an important thing, but it's not going to have the same impact upon us. It's not going to humble the mind and the body in the same way that fasting from food does and have an impact then on the other appetites like our sexual appetites. And I, we, I think we have to be able to see that. And again, that only comes through experience. Uh, Anthony writes, I at times uh, read about a Russian martial art called Sistema. It incorporates ascetic practice and Russian Orthodox faith into its mindset and training. And the persons who testify to it say that their experience in life is changing. Instructors claim to have many godchildren around the world because they're, they're, they came to appreciate Orthodoxy through living this ascetic and self-aware martial art. You mean like a fighting style? Is that what you're talking about? Not, not really a fighting style, but it's like a whole way. It's primarily about breathing okay. and about relaxing and not being afraid of death and knowing your own self, thereby being humble. Okay. Uh, th there are connections to this book, this the Ladder of Divine Ascent, that I think are pretty interesting. I wouldn't think about it unless somebody told me about it. Right. I'll have to look into it. You got me excited there. I thought there was going to be a way that I could sort of punch somebody as, you know, the spiritual life and have it be virtuous. You could. Uh, these fellows don't take themselves too seriously. And um, it's interesting to watch. Okay. I'll, to, I'll look it up here between, between this group and the next. Okay. Where do we leave off here? Number 15. Yes. There are many activities for an active mind. I mean, meditation on the love of God, on the remembrance of God, on the remembrance of the kingdom, on the remembrance of the zeal of the holy martyrs, on the remembrance of God himself, present according to him who said, I beheld the Lord ever before me, on remembrance of the holy and spiritual powers, on remembrance of one's departure, judgment, sentence, and punishment. We began with the sublime, but we have ended with things that never fail. And so the more sublime, you know, we meditating on them has a value. But as he goes down to the list, it's those things that uh, are more personally penetrating. You know, remembrance of one's departure, judgment, sentence, punishment that these things never fail in the sense that, you know, they present to us with a kind of clarity, uh, the weight of our choices and behaviors. The other things hold before us something that can be pursued a good, but the other is more motivating. 
and in that sense, never fail. An Egyptian monk once told me, after I had established in my heart the remembrance of death, whenever need arose and I wanted to comfort the clay a little, this remembrance prevented me like a judge. And the wonderful thing was that even though I wanted to thrust it away, I was quite unable to do so. So that his experience of it was that it became so deeply rooted that he, you know, his desire, to, as we've talked a lot about here tonight, to comfort the clay and you know, to comfort ourselves, uh, the remembrance of it was like a judge and that even if he wanted to fight against it or to say, forget it, I'm going to you know, pursue what is comforting, that he could not do it that having taken root in his mind and his heart, that it became something that was protective, you know, that acted almost like the voice of conscience and that would rebuke enough to present a, prevent a person from going down that particular path. So that brings us to 8.30. Does anybody have any comments on what we've talked about so far. I want to look up this Russian martial art. I'll send you a link for it. And uh, it, it's- God brought you into the world, but I could take you out. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so. Maybe you better not send that after yeah, all. That's right. <laughs> My aggressive side. So, so very important. And uh, John, as I said, is, you know, goes the deepest with this, the greatest teacher of it. And there's a lot for us yet to hear within this, this little chapter. Okay. So we'll pick up there next week. It will be the day before Thanksgiving, but I'll be here. And uh, for all those who are, are able to make it. Okay. Great. All right. Great. And for all those who are in town, we're having liturgy at 9 a.m. here in the parish if you want to join us on, on Thanksgiving morning. So, why don't we close as always with the, our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you.